This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Uh, our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. On YouTube, I mean, on uh, yes, on YouTube, just put in the three words, Spirit Matters Talk. You can then uh, not only listen to us, but see us. And uh, we have about 300 shows in our archives. For those that have been contributing to help keep us on the air, we thank you. And for those that have not, uh, go to our website and you'll see how you can do so. And also, if uh, whether you're listening or watching, please uh, hit the subscribe button. It is free and uh, we want to get as many subscriptions as possible. Uh, we have a wonderful guest today, uh, Steve Taylor. He is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the author of several best-selling books on psychology and spirituality. He is the current chair of the Transpersonal Psychology section of the British Psychological Society. His 13 books include Awakening from Sleep, The Fall, Out of the Darkness, and his latest book, Extraordinary Awakenings. And we want to uh, focus on that today, along with uh, other oh. uh, areas that he has done research and has worked in. There's a copy of the book. Thank you so very much, Steve, for taking the time to come on today. No worries. Great to be with you. Steve, we always like to have our guests uh, share with our audience something of their own spiritual history. Um, in your case, uh, it led you to, well, that's the question. Tell us a little bit about your uh, early years and what led you to uh, spirit, uh, the spirit, your spiritual interests and in transpersonal mm -hmm. psychology, which came first? psychology or your interest in spirituality um, spirituality came first I, I think it was always inside me you know at least from the age of 16 or 17 i became aware of an innate spirituality although i didn't understand it at the time at the time i thought it was a bit crazy and that, that maybe there was something wrong with me because uh, i felt so different to other people i was very drawn to solitude and i found it difficult to be with other people I was, very, I was very drawn to nature, although I lived in a big city, so there wasn't much nature around. But I used to, I used to sort of um, find natural spaces, such as parks or my school fields. I used to go back to my school fields in the evenings just to walk around and enjoy the, the solitude and the quietness. And sometimes I'd feel a, a sense of connection to my surroundings and a sense of well-being, a sense of oneness with the natural phenomena around me, um, a feeling of harmony and connection. But as I say, at the time, I didn't understand those experiences. I thought, you know, I thought they offered further evidence that I was a bit crazy. Um, but I only really began to understand the experiences when I was probably 22 years old. I discovered books about mysticism, mysticism and spirituality, and I began to recognize my own experiences. And I began to build up a framework to make sense of my experiences. And after that, I began to explore spirituality. And that led me to transpersonal psychology later on. If I could ask, uh, you, you use the term post-traumatic growth, uh, and, and obviously, you know, this is the area that uh, the, the, the book focuses on. Tell us about that, because I think most people are not, although they would be familiar with what that uh, term expresses, uh, I, I think they're not familiar with the term, term, and if you could define it for us. Uh, yeah, as you say, I think most people have experienced it, even if, even if they don't know it. But the term post-traumatic growth refers to the long-term positive after effects of 
ex tra traumatic experiences. Um, so research in psychology over, over a period of maybe 30 years now has shown that, you know, even if they take years to manifest themselves, a lot of people, probably up to around 50%, 50 of people who go through traumatic events will eventually experience positive effects, such as an enhanced sense of appreciation and gratitude, more intimate relationships, you know, more interest in spirituality or, or in philosophical issues. So post-traumatic growth is quite common. But in my, in my book, Extraordinary Awakenings, I focus on a more dramatic kind of post-traumatic growth, which I call transformation through turmoil. And that's when post-traumatic growth occurs in a very sudden and dramatic way, when people undergo a kind of identity shift in the midst of intense trauma and turmoil, almost as if they become a different person living in the same body. I don't know how it is in the UK, but here uh, in the US, um, there's been a lot of uh, focus and interest on post-traumatic stress disorder and mm. the lingering effects of, of trauma. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, just sort of in, uh, dysfunctional family kind of trauma. Sometimes, you know, the, the wars and catastrophe kind of trauma. But... Um, we're led to believe that this is uh, something that stays with people in a negative way uh, throughout their lives. Um, although we occasionally hear from people who uh, go through a severe illness or a, a, a loss or catastrophe and who say, oh, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because mm -hmm. I learned this and I grew in this way. <laughs> you make it sound like the the post-traumatic growth and transformation through turmoil is more common than we realize it is. Is that, is that so? Yeah, definitely. I think it is very common. I mean, um, I mean research shows that 47% of people will undergo some form of post-traumatic growth. And even transformational, transformation through turmoil, which is more radical and more rare, even that is not uncommon. I estimate that something like one in 100 people will go through intense turmoil and suffering and undergo transformation. And it, it is a spiritual awakening. And it, it's very common in the, you know, the annals of spiritual history. Yeah. So many spiritual teachers have been through experiences of, of incredible right. turmoil before they underwent their awakening. You know, Sri Aurobindo, the great Indian mm -hmm. evolutionary spiritual philosopher, he underwent his transformation when he was in prison when yeah. he was in his 20s, I think. Eckhart Tolle is the best, probably the most well-known example. But, you know, in the midst of ordinary life, I, I believe there are thousands of people walking amongst us who have undergone this transformation, but they don't necessarily interpret it in spiritual terms. They know that they feel different and their lives run much more smoothly and they're much more effective and they feel much more connected, much more fulfilled in their lives but they wouldn't necessarily call it a spiritual awakening. And a lot of people never talk about it because right. they're afraid that their friends will think they're crazy, right. which, you know, sometimes <laughs> that is the case. That or that they're, they're in crazy. denial. Right, they yeah. may be in denial. Right. That's possible too. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that people would think they're in denial right. if they say, you know, they've grown because of their experience and they've changed. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let, let, let me ask Steve, uh, in, in your book, you, you share the stories of uh, people you refer to, I think, as shifters uh, mm -hmm. who have had dramatic transformations. 
How did you uh, locate, find, identify those people? Some of them came to me because I've been, I've been writing about similar issues over the years. Um, about four years ago, I published a book called The Leap, which is called, which the, with the subtitle, The Psychology of Spiritual Awakening. I talked about lots of different kinds of spiritual awakening in that book. But a lot of people would write to me and say, hey, hey I've undergone a spiritual awakening and it happened after I was diagnosed with cancer. Or it happened, um, you know, after I've been addicted to alcohol or drugs for a long time or when I attempted suicide. So a lot of people just wrote to me and then other people told me about remarkable cases. So it kind of snowballed. I mean, I had many more. I think in the book, I discuss about 30 different people. But, you know, I, I could have extended the book, but, you know, to four times that length because so many people got in contact with me. Is there something about the people who become shifters, who you identify as having these big, you know, breakthroughs after uh, very difficult life experiences? Is there something about them that's different, that's identifiably different from people hmm. who undergo similar trauma but don't shift? Yeah, that's a good question because everybody goes through trauma at some point in their lives, at several points, points in our lives. You know, we all experience bereavement many times in our lives. A lot of us go through depression or addiction and so forth. You know, some of us go to prison, but not so many prisoners undergo transformation and, and, and so forth. But, you know, as I said before, maybe only one in a hundred people experience this transformation. So that was one of the questions I, I, I thought a lot about, you know, what is it that makes these people different? And, and it, it is quite a mysterious transformation that's difficult to explain in some ways. But one, you know, one feature of it, of it is that, you know, it's, it's a lot to do with ego dissolution, breaking down of the ego. When people go through intense turmoil and suffering, it just, you know, it destroys their identity. identity. Or it could be like, a, like an, an intense period of stress, which is like an earthquake. It suddenly sort of shatters your identity. But, you know, when most people have that kind of breakdown it is just a painful experience it just brings them even more suffering but for a small number of people that breakdown is a shift up it's a it is an awakening and that it seems to be because there is a kind of latent higher self inside them which is ready to be born which is waiting to be born somehow that there is an alternative higher self which is fully formed as a structure just like a, a chick which is ready to hatch out of the egg it's just waiting for the opportunity. So that's what happens in some people, that they're just ready for it to emerge. So is it, I mean, if, if we agree that we all have that latent higher self, as you put it, um, mm -hmm. what makes some people ready for it? And is it just a question of a personal growth and development and past experience and what yeah. we call karma? Possibly. I mean, some people just don't seem to be ready well, I mean, there are other factors too. Like the, the attitude with which you respond to your predicament is very important. For example, I found that people who had the kind of courage and openness to face their predicament with an attitude of acceptance, or well, right. first of all, to acknowledge their predicament, to acknowledge the the full reality of their predicament, no matter how painful and you know dangerous it was, that was very important. But I think the most important thing was acceptance. You know. A lot of people could identify one particular moment when they accepted their situation. And that was right. when the transformation occurred. Right. Steve, if you were asked to speak to, maybe you've done this, a group of, say, prisoners, 
people that are in for uh, for crime that uh, their their lives uh, have been seriously disrupted by it. And mm -hmm. and uh, you know the um, re recidivism rate is quite high, at least in the states. I'm sure in England as well. A lot mm -hmm. of people come back. If you were to speak to a group like that, and 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 they were there because they were were interested in what you were, were talking about, uh, what would you advise them? Because in your book you talk about a four-step process of responding to suffering and turmoil. Mm -hmm. So they're in a situation suffering, turmoil, disruption, uh, and they're either going to go back to that or they're going to mm -hmm. uh, uh, transcend or go beyond that. Uh, yeah. Is there specific advice that you would give them? Yeah, very good question. I mean, pr prison is actually paradoxically quite a fertile environment for spiritual growth. Right. And that's because when you're in prison, first of all, you, you have the opportunity for self-exploration, which we often don't have in when we're living in the external right. world when our lives are so busy and so full of activity. And also in prison, you're forced to let go of everything which constitutes your identity. All of your roles, all of your attachments are outside the prison walls on the other side. Right. So in prison, I mean, that's partly why it's such a painful experience because you have to let go of everything which gives you identity. But that is also, you know, a very um, fertile ground for spiritual growth. So, so really you need to sort of harness the potential of the situation, I would say. First of all, you've got to acknowledge the reality of your predicament. You've got to stop resisting the reality of your predicament, even if you're in prison. I mean, this is obviously incredibly difficult to do. If you have a long-term prison sentence, it's a very, it's very painful to face the reality of your predicament, but you have to face up to it. That, you know, that you're going to spend X numbers of number of years in prison. And this is your environment. This is your living environment for the indefinite future. And once you've uh, acknowledged the predicament, then you have to let go of resistance and accept, you know, somehow let go just stop trying to hang on to your previous identity. And it, and also, you know, prison is a very turbulent environment. It can be very noisy and it's full of agitation and violence. So you need to go, if you want to find peace, you have to go within, you know, you have mm. to sort of explore yourself and go within to find inner peace. So I think, you know, some prisoners are forced to do that. They realize that the only possibility of finding peace is to go within. And prison forces them to do to do that. So a lot of prisoners do start to meditate, and once they do start to you know engage with that inner process of development, that's when their transformation begins. Would you apply that same reasoning to other forms of severe trauma? Uh, uh, prison is one thing; it's an extended time, but you also talk about things like uh, being uh, at war. Uh, mm. or in combat, I should say, and uh, probably natural disasters, uh, illness, sudden death of loved ones, things like that. How does that process work in those instances, yeah. especially around what you mentioned earlier, the loss of ego identity? It's very similar. Um, you could take bereavement as an example. Bereavement is probably the most common and most painful human experience. It's like an earthquake which disrupts everything in our lives. You know, it destroys all of the familiarity and stability around us. And once the ground settles again, the world seems like a completely different place. You know, and it kind of break, breaks down our identity because, you know, the world has changed so much. But, you know, that, that is a very painful experience. But also it does offer 
a great deal of transformational potential if you approach it in the right way. Some people naturally find bereavement very difficult to accept and, you know, they, they divert themselves from the reality of it. You know, they maybe drink or take drugs to try to get away from the pain, which is, again, completely understandable. But you have to, you know, acknowledge and accept the reality that, the per that you have lost that person, that you are never going to encounter them directly in this form, in this world, and your life is going to be completely different from now on. And if you, you know, if you engage with that process of acceptance and if you open yourself and surrender and let go, that's usually when, when transformation begins to take place. Do you Same provide you know, uh, or, or recommend tools for helping that transformation to take place? For instance, meditation, yoga, yeah. uh, any spiritual practices that you feel are particularly helpful for somebody? Because it's one thing for somebody to make an intellectual decision. Hey, this is right. I've been an mm. alcoholic. I've been in trouble. I, I'm going to get beyond this. I'm going to make this work for me. I'm inspired by the lives of these shifters that have done it. Why can't I do it? Uh, what tools? Give me anything. I, I, I give you every everything that will help me make this yeah. uh, 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 leap. And uh, so, what what sorts of things do you recommend to them? Lifestyle changes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, therapy can be very helpful. You know, things like acceptance and commitment therapy is right. a very useful therapeutic intervention because therapy can help you to go through that process of acknowledgement and acceptance. It can give you like a a safe and supportive framework to go through that process. Meditation is very important. I found that a lot of shifters underwent their transformation following a period of meditation. There was actually a prisoner I interviewed who he's been in prison now for 40 years in Arkansas. And you know, about eight years into his prison sentence, it was a bit like I described earlier. He realized that he had to go within if he was going to find any happiness in this kind of turbulent environment, he had to go inside. He didn't know what meditation was, but in retrospect, he realized that he was spontaneously meditating and just sort of focusing on his own inner being. And there was a certain point where his something broke down inside him and he began, he began, began to cry for the first time that he could remember. He began to empathize with the people he'd hurt due to his crime and he empathized with himself. So meditation somehow broke down the inner boundaries which separated him from his spiritual self. Um, yeah, and, and also there are lots of meditative um, processes or activities such as contact with nature, periods of quietness and inactivity, solitude can be very helpful. So lots of, you know, there are lots of different strategies and practices we can go through to, you know, to facilitate the transformational process. Did you find that uh, people who underwent these kind of shifts uh, spontaneously, the ones who you call shifters. Um, to what extent did it lead to a different way of life subsequently? And and were some uh, were 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 they did they tend to be people who had a spiritual life prior to or didn't and then did? How did mm -hmm. it uh, change their uh, their way of life? In most cases, it was people who didn't really know anything about spirituality. They'd never engaged in spiritual practices before. And that was why some people found it difficult to understand what had happened. In a few cases, people did have a spiritual background, but even then, they sometimes found the transformation difficult to adjust to because it was so radical. And certainly having a spiritual background made it easy for them to make sense of what had happened. 
And what, what normally happened was that, you know, if people didn't know anything about spirituality, they felt fantastic. They felt this new sense of connection and this new sense of fundamental well-being. But they, it was sometimes overlaid with confusion. But usually over a period of months or years, they gravitated towards spiritual traditions. Usually they read a book by chance and thought, ah, this is what's happened to me. Now yeah, I understand. Yeah. So that, that was very helpful. And it, yeah, and in terms of the changes, it did bring about very radical changes. A lot of people changed careers. For example, one woman was, um, she was the IT manager at a pharmaceutical company. Then she was diagnosed with cancer and underwent a transformational journey. And she couldn't do the job anymore. It just didn't seem right. So she became a therapist and a counselor. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it has bad effects. So sometimes it breaks down relationships. Sometimes it leads to divorce because for the partners of these people, it's as if they're suddenly married to a different person. They're like, who is this person? This is not right. the person I married <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> so yeah, that's the unfortunate, you know, it can lead to break up and breaks up right. breakups in relationship. Right. Uh, uh, Steve, you, you, you mentioned a gentleman in uh, that you worked with in Arkansas and, and you're, you're based in the UK. Uh, do you, have you noticed uh, that there are certain, there are cultural differences. There are some cultural cultures that lend themselves more to this type of transformation than others or certain religious groups or types of people categorically that uh, are more or less apt to uh, make these changes? I think in cultures which are more accepting of spirituality, such as perhaps Indian culture or Buddhist cultures, such as Thailand or Sri Lanka, they would be more likely to, you know, provide a framework which would enable people to make sense of this experience. You know, in secular cultures, such as, you know, Europe and the US are largely secular cultures now, you know, any unusual states of consciousness are thought of as, as insanity, so that they are pathologized. So people, you know, usually people have a, a, usually shifters have a deep knowing that they have not gone crazy, but other people around them may say, you know, have right. you been taking drugs or, you know, have you had a breakdown? And the psychiatrist <laughs> will give them medication, sometimes even yeah, sessions. So, yeah, certainly in other cultures, it, it, there would be a better outcome for these experiences. But well, one thing I've found, actually, is that women seem to be more likely to undergo this experience. Interesting. Uh, that, I don't have any hard statistics, but I, I've probably been contacted by over 200 people who've had this experience, and probably two-thirds of them are women. So there may be, it, it could be that women are just more willing to come forward about their, about their experiences. Or maybe there is something about, you know, something fundamentally slightly different about women that makes them more open to these kinds of, kind of experiences. Or, or uh, since there's a certain amount of uh, surrender and uh, ego uh, abandonment, that maybe their men are more invested in toughing it out or something. And uh... yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, maybe the, <laughs> the sort of socially conditioned male ego is a bit more rigid and solid, and is and therefore not more, not as open to these kind of experiences. Well, uh, Steve, you're very, uh, your book seems to be uh, practically oriented. We've been talking about the focus of your book being people who've undergone these uh, severe traumas, but you, uh, 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 you make the, what, what you've learned from it accessible to everybody. I mean, we all have traumas, but uh, 
the, the severe traumas, you know, imprisonment, warfare, things like that are, are rare. What about the average person, especially our listeners who tend to be spiritually in, inclined people? How would you apply uh, the lessons you've learned to to our lives? And uh, you have, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll give you the intro, the four, your four-step <laughs> process. <laughs> in yeah. The book. Yeah, people sometimes say to me, you know, are you saying that we have to suffer in order to grow spiritually? But no, that's not the case at all. I mean, obviously, there are, there are lots of different ways of undergoing spiritual development. I think most people who are engaged in spiritual awakening or development, you know, they, they don't, they haven't necessarily been through intense trauma. They've just engaged with spiritual paths and practices because of some deep inner impulse inside them. I think sometimes trauma and turmoil can shift that process along and Maybe, maybe even shifts shifts us up to a high level of development, but you know, but we we can certainly apply some of the principles that the that the people in my book have you know have undergone to our own spiritual development, and one of them is um, what I call psychological detachment. And I don't mean detachment in a negative sense, in in the sense of being indifferent to the world. I mean not being psychologically attached to too many external things. So I, I, I believe that most people go through transformation in, term, in sort of turbulent situations because they have to let go of their psychological attachments. They have to let go of their ambitions for the future. They have to let go of their social roles. They have to let go of beliefs, let go of relationships and so on. So everything which constitutes their identity is taken away, all of their, all of their attachments. And when enough attachments are taken away, the ego itself collapses. Attachment to like the building blocks of the ego. So we can certainly, you know, follow that principle in our own lives. We can, you know, try to be consciously aware of the things we are attached to and try to dissolve some of the attachments and try to focus our well-being uh, within, you know, rather than depending on external attachments for well-being. We can turn within and find the true sense, uh, true source of well-being. So that's one thing. Also, um, I found that a lot of people in my book experience transformation through encounters with death, um, simply through becoming aware of the reality of death. So I recommend that you know we should make friends with death. We should contemplate our own mortality. We should visit cemeteries and just you know, at the same. I love to visit cemeteries, not just for the because they're incredibly peaceful and beautiful surroundings, but because. I like to remind myself of the, the gift of life and how fragile and temporary the gift right. of life is. So there are things like that. Phil, uh, any, any yeah, final questions? I was, yeah. I'm cur- I, I, do, I do have a couple of other points. I, I know a, a certain a spiritual tradition, especially in the East, um, what you just said is often baked in. It's, you know, people... Uh, I did a biography of Yogananda. He had a, uh, a tantric teacher when he was young who would take him to the graveyard and who, right. who brought a skull into his meditation room. So mm-hmm. he would, they would be aware of, of, of death. And, uh, yeah. and, and I'm also curious, um, it, in, in a lot of the, uh, especially monastic settings in the East, this, this process of breaking down people's ego attachments is, is often a very uh, deliberate uh, strategy used by gurus, sometimes to such excess 
that they they you know people become traumatized and and it's inappropriate but hmm. but that kind of strategy both you know gentle and by administering certain shocks and putting people through certain things seems very similar to hmm. uh the spontaneous Wait. things that happen with with uh turmoil have you looked into any of that that those yeah teachers? yeah I, I think every spiritual tradition emphasizes the importance of detachment you know you, you were just saying about uh, yogananda and you know in buddhism they have cemetery meditations where yeah. and also you know if a buddhist monk sees a, a dead body by the side of the road by the side of the path as they would do perhaps 2000 years ago they would sit down and meditate just to contemplate the the fragility and impermanence of their own lives uh, and that kind of strategy being aware of death is also right. a way of breaking down your ego attachments right, i think it's right. probably the most effective way of breaking right, them down right. And a lot of, um, you know, Christianity emphasize, mystical Christianity emphasizes the same, same thing, you know, giving right. up your worldly goals and possessions. Right. Right. Monastic tradition is about that. It's about, you know, you know, in the book, I suggest there are lots of parallels between monks and prisoners, you know, even right. they both live in cells. <laughs> but, right. but yeah, it's the same kind of thing. You're living a life of conscious detachment. A monk is living a life of conscious right. detachment. It, it, it also, yeah, it also seems that, I, when Phil mentioned about the uh, uh, religious orders being with a guru, being being in a in, in a monastery, I, I have some familiarity with like a Trappist monastery, Thomas Merton, that tradition, uh, mm -hmm. and they they often talk about the dark night of the soul. So they're in this uh, deep in prayer, meditation, deep you know, just turning in. It's a very solitude solitary life, although they're living in a group, but there's a a, a lot of quietness. And they all seem to reach a point where, and I think it's uh, it's described as letting go of the attachments, where they have mm -hmm. this dark night, this before the light comes, and uh, it seems to be a common tradition. And not only in 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 Christian monasticism, but in in all the traditions, they they mm -hmm. talk about that. And it seems to be right along the lines of what uh, you're discussing in your book. You know, the yeah. chaos, the trauma Definitely. that comes before the uh, the growth. Yeah, yeah. The only difference is that in my book, it happens accidentally and spontaneously. Yeah. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's a kind of, I mean, in AA, they use the term bottoming out. Right. It's like, you know, you, you become completely empty. You lose everything. Right. But in some way, that connects you with something deeper within yourself. Uh, Steve, one quick question about uh, one of the stages uh, uh, and strategies you, you talk about being important, which is acceptance. Um, could you elaborate a bit about acceptance? Because uh, you, often when, when you say to people to, you know, accept your situation, it sounds like uh, one is advocating being passive uh, and mm. not doing anything to change the situation or the circumstance. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that it seems uh, counterproductive in that sense. What do you mean by acceptance and how does it uh, differ from what I said? That, yeah, that is a common misinterpretation. Acceptance does not necessarily mean becoming passive and indifferent. It doesn't mean that you have to accept negative aspects of your life. Because I mean, obviously there are some aspects of your life that may need to be changed. You know, um, you know if you are in a, an abusive relationship, if you're living in a terrible environment, you know, maybe you need to change those things rather than just accept them. But often, you know, acceptance is the, is the beginning of the process of change. Before you change things, you need to accept them. You need to open. You know, 
maybe acceptance is a slightly misleading term. You should maybe talk about letting go of resistance. Mm. Once you let go of right. resistance to your predicament, then you open yourself to it. You become fully aware of the reality of it. And then you can actually discern what needs to be changed. Then you have, you have a greater discernment. I always love the, you know, the AA prayer, you know, the right. one about um, give me the, the grace to accept what cannot be changed and the wisdom to change what ought to be changed, something along those lines. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, there are some things I, 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 I know it, but I couldn't. You know the one? <laughs> yes, yes. The, the, the uh, wisdom to know, uh, uh, oh, God, now I can't remember. <laughs> but the, it's the wisdom to know the difference between what you can change and what you can't right, change. Right, right. Yeah. Except the latter. Anyway, so it, the important thing is just to let go of resistance and open yourself to the reality of your predicament. And see, then, you know, you, you can undergo liberation and yours again, the strength and the discernment to change what needs to be changed. Steve, any other, uh, any final words you'd like to share with our listeners? And then uh, Phil, uh, I'll hold, hold up, up the, the book, book again. again. A little bit clearer, a little bit more to the center. Our friends at New World. Back it up a little bit. There you go. <laughs> Extraordinary World awakening. Library. Extraordinary um, awakenings when trauma leads to transformation. Perhaps the only thing I'd like to end with is that, um, you know, I think we human beings, we often underestimate ourselves. And when life is running smoothly and easily, we tend only to scratch the, the surface of our potential. But when we're challenged by crises and by trauma, we have to go deep within ourselves and almost always we find massive reserves of resilience, which we were never aware of. So I'd like to remind everybody that we are actually much stronger than we realize. You know, we are deeper and stronger than we realize. And when we do go through traumatic events or critical situations, in almost all cases, we'll find the resilience to cope with them. And maybe we'll also find a lot of transformational potential too. Very good. Excellent. Thank you so very much. Thanks so much for being with us, Steve. Uh, Thank you. At, um, and again, the book is Extraordinary Awakenings. Uh, we'll have all that information posted up as well. And um, continue your good work. We'll look forward to your next uh, publication. And oh, right. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me.